Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word, that it is in your word that you have encapsulated all that we need to know, all that we uh, should know in order to have salvation, in order to live a life that honors and glorifies you, and in order to have all of the joy and happiness that you have for us. Father, your word is sufficient, your grace is sufficient, and your word reflects the very teach, the very thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, now as we study your word, we uh, want to put aside from all of our thoughts the distracting details of life so that we can put our attention upon what you have to teach us this morning through the God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I want to uh, give you a little a uh, story that I just learned about that happened last Saturday night. Now, I was not uh, uh, either watching the game or at the game. Tommy Ice was at the game. But there was quite an exciting game uh, at, up in Arlington last Saturday night between University of Texas and who are they playing? Nebraska. Nebraska, that's right. See, I... I I wasn't there, so wasn't watching, busy. My head was in my paper I was giving on Monday morning. But what happened at the game, at the exciting ending of, of the game, is that, uh, that the, it looked like the clock ran out and Texas was down and was losing, and uh, then all of a sudden it was realized they misidentified the time. They had one second left, left and so the kicker came out to uh, kick a field goal, 46-yard field goal, which is not not something that is uh, easily done. And so the pressure mounted. And as the pressure mounted, the other team called a timeout in order to intensify the, the pressure and to uh, rattle the kicker. But the little-known fact is that what kept the kicker, kicker relaxed was that his his holder was a believer, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as is the quarterback for, for UT and, and, and the kicker. And the holder just kept repeating Bible promises to him while he was out there on the field getting ready to kick that field goal. So as I 
keep telling you it's the Word of God that stabilizes your emotions and relaxes you, and that's why you have to memorize promises and why I keep repeating what seems like the same old promises over and over again before Bible classes is to aid you in that memory so that when those times come, when you have to get out there in the middle of the field and kick that field goal, uh, you will hear my voice perhaps in your head and relax a little bit as you hear those familiar promises uh, go by one more time. Second Kings chapter 4, as we've seen, is part of this section in Second Kings dealing with the ministry of Elisha to the northern kingdom of Israel. During this time, the northern kingdom of Israel is deeply mired in apostasy. They have accepted not only the false cult of the of um, Jeroboam, but they have been deeply influenced by the cult of Baal, the fertility, uh, the fertility god and god and goddesses of the of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, and so as we've studied in the last few weeks, they have basically adopted a belief system that would lead to death. In Proverbs, Solomon writes, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. This is a common theme in the Old Testament takes us back to Deuteronomy when Moses, in his parting words to the Jews as he was about to go up uh, Mount Ebal to be taken to be with the Lord, gave his parting admonition to them and stated in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. And the point is that we all have a choice. We all have volition. We all make decisions that impact our life on a day-to-day basis, and we make decisions that impact our eternal destiny. Ultimately, the decision is ours, each individual. This is part of the first divine institution, which is personal responsibility. We are accountable to God for our lives. The most important decision that any person can make is that decision that affects their eternal destiny. It is that decision as to whether or not to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. The next most important decision that people make is an ongoing decision, and that is a decision as to what we are going to do with this new spiritual life that we have been given as a result of our faith in Christ. Are we going to nourish it? Are we going to give it the proper diet so that we can uh, grow and mature and eventually God the Holy Spirit can produce uh, fruit in us. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then uh, I, you will bear much fruit. There's a twofold condition there. Number one, we have to abide in Christ, which is the ongoing walk of the believer. The phrase abiding in Christ in John 15 is uh, comparable to 
Paul's term, walking by means of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 16, Ephesians chapter 5, walking in the light. These are all related concepts because in each of these passages we see that the result of these commands is the bearing of fruit. Fruit is simply the spiritual production in a, an individual's life. So there has to be nourishment in order for there to be growth. Just as in the physical life, we have to uh, eat a proper diet, and how we eat and what we eat affects how we feel, affects energy levels, affects uh, our uh, susceptibility to disease and many other things, so that we have to have a healthy diet in order to uh, live in a healthy way, and we have to have a steady intake of the right uh, nutrients in order to have uh, in order to have health. And so all of this relates back to the basic issue of choice and what we choose to eat. Now, this eating is a basic idea that we find. Uh, illustrated in, in especially the last uh, two episodes that are given in Second Kings chapter 4. So look down at verse 38, and just I'll briefly review what we focused on last, last time. Elisha returned to Gilgal in verse 38. There was a famine in the land. Now, the famine in the land, the physical famine in the land, the lack of food, is a reality as part of God's divine discipline on the nation for their rejection of him, their idolatry, both in terms of the worship of the idol that Jeroboam had set up in Bethel and up in Dan, as well as those who had even were involved in worse idolatry in the fertility religions of Baal. And so God was disciplining them with famine. There is death uh, death in the land as a result of their rejection of God. But the famine also is used to depict the spiritual famine that is existing in the land because of their rejection of God and because of their uh, negative volition. And so there's the episode where the sons of the prophets are making this stew, and one of them had gathered some uh, some gourds to put in the stew, and it poisoned the stew. And so there was death in the pot, and they called upon Elijah to do something. And he sprinkled some flour, verse 41. He sprinkled flour into the pot, and that then resulted in the pot exchange from uh, death to life. And the flour comes from grain, and this is used as a picture in, in the scripture of that which God produces, the life that God produces. And so there's a connection there that is presented through, through the uh, symbolism of, of the event. And then we come to verse 42. In verse 42, we have another miracle that takes place reinforcing the same theme, and that is that man and man's religions and man's philosophies can only produce death. No matter how much intellectual stimulation there may be, no matter how good you might feel from various uh, religious activities or mystical exercises that just uh, reinforce the our own subjective emotions, no matter what immediate effects there might be, there's no good long-term effect. That human religions, human philosophies, humans' ideas all end in death, as Solomon said. The, uh, there's a way that seems right to man, 
but the end thereof is death. The only solution is God's solution, which begins with grace. And that is the theme that we see throughout this entire section of Elisha's ministry is on the grace of God and that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, that there's nothing in life, there's no adversity, no problem, no situation in life that we can ever face that is too great for the grace of God. God supplies everything for us. He doesn't just provide a little bit. God doesn't say, I'll help those who help themselves. God says, I've provided everything. And so in the next episode, which is briefly described in verses 42 to 44, we see this emphasis again on grain and on food. And so this this is the focus, is that God is the only one who can provide the right spiritual food for man. Uh, verse 42, Then a man came from Baal-Shalishah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. Remember the connection, grain, ground is flour, and that's why we had the addition of the flour to the, to the stew in the previous episode, emphasis on uh, God being the only one who provides the right spiritual nourishment. And so he's got ripened grain in his knapsack, and he said, give it to the people that they may eat. So this is a time of a famine. Many people are doing without. They are on the verge of starvation, and now they have 20 loaves of barley bread. Well, 20 loaves of barley bread just isn't a tremendous amount of bread. It's better than nothing, but it's not a lot when you're dealing with large numbers of people, hundreds of people that don't have, that don't have food. And so... Elisha's servant who suffers from foot and mouth disease constantly as we go through these episodes says, well, what shall I set this before a hundred men? This is hardly going to provide anything. And the man said, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. And this is um, the identification here when it says, uh, he said again, that would be Elisha is speaking here saying give it to the lord that they may uh, give it to the people that they may eat for thus says the lord they shall eat and have some left over it's a picture of the sufficiency of god's grace that we can never ever exploit the grace of god too much we're never going to outdo it there's always an abundance because god is the one who supplies the resources god does not have a finite amount to give us we are never going to run out of of what God can give. He will always supply things. And so verse 44 we read, So so he set it before them, that is the servant set it before them, passed out the, the loaves of bread, and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now what this pictures, the teaching element in these three verses, focuses back on the grace of God, God provides the spiritual nourishment for his people, but they have rejected him. And again and again, God is setting forth his grace, his offer of provision to uh, Israel during this time, and there seems to be ongoing rejection of that. And there is some response, which we'll we'll see as we go through the next uh, four or five chapters, but he's that all of these miracles constantly enforce that. But not only that, they also foreshadow 
what Jesus is going to do and what Jesus is going to teach in much the same way, in much the same kind of a context of spiritual rejection in John chapter 6. So I want you to turn with me to the 6th chapter of John. The 6th chapter of John is known as the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, this will conclude with verses 47 48, where Jesus will say, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. And in three or four different ways, Jesus reinforces this statement in John 6 that he is the bread of life. He is the one who gives life. Only by believing in him can we have life. He is the source of life. Life is a major theme in these, especially the two chapters of John 5 and John 6. He is the one who alone can provide the nourishment for spiritual life and for spiritual growth, and there is no source of spiritual nourishment in anyone else. Now, this isn't a sort of mystical feeding on Jesus, which is an idea that has entered into uh, the history of Christianity, an idea that really was developed in the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic view of uh, of the Lord's table, that the uh, the bread and the wine actually turn into the physical flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and by only by this ongoing or continuously eating or feeding, which they take in a more literal sense, on on the body and blood of Christ, can the believer become saved. It's a process that goes on for. For, throughout life, it's, you're not saved in a one-time event with the decision to believe in Jesus. You are only saved as you get the grace of God in uh, bits and pieces as it's partialed out through observance of the, uh, of, of the sacraments. And that's not what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6 at all. But in order to get the significance of it, we have to also pick up the context. Now, the context goes back to John chapter 5, and in John 5, 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, I want you to notice that in this verse, Jesus gives only one condition for salvation, and that is believing in him. That believing in him is a response to the hearing of his word, the hearing of the gospel message. So you hear, which means somebody tells you that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, paid the penalty for your sins, and that by believing in him you can have eternal life. So you hear the word, and then if you believe it, doesn't say if you invite Jesus into your heart or invite Jesus into your life or commit yourself to Jesus, nothing like that. John never uses terminology like that, never uses terms like repent. The word repent never shows up in the gospel 
in the Gospel of John. In fact, the only time John uses the word is in the book of Revelation in those seven letters to the seven churches, to believers, not to unbelievers. The message to believers is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so that is the point of John 5.24. But what gave rise to this statement that Jesus makes in John 5.24? Well, in order to understand that, I want to just briefly summarize John 5 because that parallels the message of John 6 and is uh, significant for us in understanding uh, the doctrine that the Lord's teaching here. In John 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. In John 6, Jesus is in the north in Galilee. He leaves Jerusalem in between and heads north. In Jerusalem, he is rejected by the Pharisees. In chapter 6, Jesus is rejected by the people in Galilee. In both chapters, the message is the same, the offer is the same, which is eternal life. Now, the situation that occurs in John chapter 5 is that Jesus heals the lame man who's been lame for 38 years, and he's been at the pool of Bethesda where there is the legend that if the waters are moved, that an angel's moved the water, and the first one who can make it to the water and get in will be healed. And so this lame man has been there for 38 years, and the implication is that he really hasn't been trying hard, but he's been there uh, waiting and hoping that something will happen. And Jesus addressed him in verse 6, said, Do you want to be made well? And the man said, Well, uh, no one can put me in the pool, but uh, while I'm coming, someone else gets there. Notice he doesn't answer the question. Do you want to be well? He talks about something else. He didn't say, Yes, I do. He said, Well, you know, I just can't get there in time. Somebody always beats me to it. Uh, he's not not focused on it. But Jesus says, rise, verse 8, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus heals him. There's no faith on the part of the, 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 the lame man. He doesn't say, yes, he does, I want to be healed. He doesn't say, uh, Jesus, Lord, heal me now. He doesn't say anything. Jesus just heals him. And we don't know what, uh, he probably wasn't a believer at that point. He becomes one later. But the point is that Jesus is demonstrating who he is and not something about the faith of the person who is being healed. He is, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the source of life. He is the one who can provide nourishment to those who are in need of nourishment and heal those who are in need of healing. And so this is done, though, on the Sabbath, which becomes the point of contention with the Pharisees who are constantly getting irritated because Jesus would violate their little traditions and do things uh, that they didn't approve of. And so that set up the the conflict. And then Jesus just exacerbated it. You know, Jesus did not try to negotiate with the Pharisees. Jesus was not afraid of offending the Pharisees. There are really, when you look at Scripture, there's three kinds of people that the Scripture focuses on. There are those who are believers and who squared away and going forward. There's the weak believer who is confused, he's young, he, he can easily get distracted, and we are to be very careful in the way we deal with things around the weaker, younger uh, believer. But there's a third category, and that's the Pharisee. 
And the Pharisees made up his mind that legalism is right and grace is wrong. And Jesus is always in their face. He is always uh, confronting them and throwing their legalism up in their face. He never tries to um, soften uh, the situation. And so not only does he heal on the on the um, on the Sabbath, but then he begins to talk about who he is as as being identical with the Father, and this really irritates them uh, to no end, and they begin to uh, conspire even more to kill him. First of all, because he has done these things on the Sabbath, in verse sixteen. And then in Jesus' response in verse 17 is that my father has been working until now, and I have been working. The way he says that it links the two together. And in verse 19, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he, he sees, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. And so as he develops this thought that he and the father are are virtually identical, this is viewed as blasphemy by the by the Pharisees that Jesus is making himself out to be God. And so Jesus goes on, and in verse 24 he says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment, but it's passed from death into life. And then in verse 39 he goes on to develop this, and he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So there's two elements that are being emphasized here. The first has to do with the word, the message from God. And the second has to do with believing in him as the one who can give them eternal life. So there's the focus on the word, the message, and the response to the word. In John 5:40, Jesus goes on to say, but you are not willing to come to me. Now, that's an important phrase. He says, the reason that you are hostile to me is because you have made a choice to the Pharisees. You are not willing to come to me. There's, he's not making an issue of any, uh, anything else. He says, you are the ones who have made this decision. You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Um, then in John 5, 44, what do we have? 45 to 47, he says, I do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. So you see, he's connecting the scriptures back to Moses and what Moses revealed. And then he says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Now, think about who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the liberal Sadducees who uh, don't really be, don't believe in resurrection, don't believe in any kind of eternal life. He's talking to the Pharisees who've memorized the law of Moses and who are the most uh, detail-minded when it comes to trying to apply the law. And what he says to them is, you don't believe in Moses. I'm sure they were just speechless at that because they all would 
fight and die for the fact that they did believe in Moses. But he's saying, no, you don't really believe in Moses. For if you, uh, for if you believe Moses, verse 46, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is really strong stuff. He's telling the Pharisees that they don't believe Moses, and if they did, if they really believed Moses, they would uh, in turn believe him. Now, the key issue that we see in these verses as a setup for where we're going in chapter 6 is that there's the word of God which contains the message. It is the word of God that is revealed by uh, God the Father through God the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of human writers, so that what is recorded is without error, and it is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind or the thinking of Christ. That means every verse in the Bible is part of Christ's thinking, not just those red-letter verses. Not just the verses in the Gospels. Every now and then somebody will say something about, well, and I've heard this from people in some different circumstances and in different denominations that focus on the Gospels a lot and say, well, we just want to learn a lot about Jesus. Well, if you want to learn a lot about Jesus, you read Genesis 1, you read Genesis 5 with all the genealogy, you read Exodus, you read Leviticus, you read the Minor Prophets, you read Acts, you read Revelation, you read Ephesians, you read the Gospels, you read all of it because all of the Bible is the mind of Christ and is equally the mind of Christ. So whenever you're studying any verse anywhere in the Bible, you're studying the thinking of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would be, believe me, because it's the same thinking. And if, they don't, if you reject Jesus, then you have really rejected Moses. You have, not, you have not believed that. So he's taking them, at that point, directly back to Moses. Now, this is what Jesus was teaching in the south in Jerusalem. And after that, he moved north. And in chapter 6, verse 1, we read, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So why are they following him? Not because they see him as the Messiah, not because they see him as a teacher of doctrine, but because he's going to heal their diseases and he's going to feed their bellies. And that often is true for many people whose initial motivation to come to Christ is not spiritual because they're, they don't have any spiritual uh, understanding. And so they are just following after him. And they also have a political agenda, we know, as it comes out in this passage also, because they think that, that he's going to be, if he is the Messiah, he's going to be the one who will free them from the tyranny of Rome. So their focus is completely off base. And what Jesus is going to teach them in the context of John 6 is the truth about freedom and that real freedom has its essence in in spirituality and that if you're not free from the sin nature, you're never free. And that as Paul states in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, that until we're free from the tyranny of the sin nature, we are not free, and political freedom is, is impossible 
without spiritual freedom uh, from the sin nature. So the masses are following him, and he goes up on a mountain. This is along the coast there of the, uh, literally it's the Lake of Galilee. The Greek word thalassae uh, can mean lake or sea. Sea is salt water. Lake is fresh water. And the uh, English translators uh, initially mis- misunderstood the Greek word and thought of it as only a saltwater or as only a sea, so they called it the Sea of Galilee. But actually, it's uh, Lake Gennesaret, as it is referred to today, and not a sea at all. So this is simply a result of a misunderstanding of the Greek word. So, they, but we call it that because that's how it's been traditionally translated. So the, we're then told in verse four. Now the Passover. A feast of the Jews was near. Now, he doesn't just throw that in there because it's a nice little chronological note. He wants us to be thinking about what goes on at Passover. What are the, what are the things that are, happen at Passover? And Passover is actually the first day of a seven-day feast, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so bread is a central issue at the feast of Passover. And the bread in the old, really comes out of the Old Testament, and there the bread focused on two aspects of doctrine. Number one, the unleavened bread focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as being without sin. Leaven frequently pictures or depicts sin in the Scripture because it permeates everything, and sin affects and permeates everything. And... The second thing, and so without, in unleavened bread, it's depicting the fact that Jesus was without sin. He was impeccable. The second thing that comes out of bread in relationship to the Exodus event was that as the Jews were moving from Egypt to Mount Sinai and were without food, God provided food through the miracle of manna. Manna is a Hebrew word that means What? Or what is it? Or what it is? It is, uh, it, it, the, the Jews got up in the morning, they went out and looked like dew on the ground, but it was these little wafers of some kind of bread that tasted like coriander seed. I often think they probably taste like a hot Shipley donut, but, um, they, after a while they got tired of it and would grumble and complain, but it was God teaching them that He provided everything they needed for nourishment. Day by day, he only gave enough for the day. If they took too much, it would rot, and uh, it would smell, and it would get worms. And so they would take just enough for the day, and then God would give a fresh supply tomorrow. Great depiction of God's grace provision for ongoing nourishment. So these are the two connected ideas in bread. One is the person of Christ, and the other is that it is Christ who provides the nourishment for us as we feed on him. Now, Jesus pulls these ideas together in the bread of life uh, discourse. Now, when we think about Moses at the end of chapter 4, we think about the Passover, and we think about bread, we think, of course, about, about manna. Now, it was in this context that we have the statement in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Moses summarized some of this, he said, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. 
And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he, so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus picks up the last part of that verse and restates it in a similar context in Matthew 4, 4, dealing with the importance of the Word of God as our source and our only source for spiritual nourishment, that the Word of God, the written Word of God, is directly related to Jesus as the living Word of God. The written Word of God is the propositional inscription that summarizes the thinking of Jesus Christ. And it's only as we feed on his word that we are feeding on Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is going to give a practical lesson in John, in, in John 6. As the men, as the uh, people are gathered around him, he looks out on the crowd and there's a huge number of people and it's way past lunchtime and people's blood sugar is getting, you know, going down and they're, uh, they're getting sick and so he, uh, decides to use this as another little teaching opportunity for his disciples. And so he called Philip over in verse 5 and he said, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? The, the real issue is, Philip, have you learned the lesson that we go to the Lord to solve our problems and we don't, don't try to do it on our, out of our own efforts? And uh, verse 6 says that Jesus did this to test him. But Philip answered, well, Lord, 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them. In other words, this is a huge crowd. We can't afford to feed them all. And so his focus is totally on the wrong thing, not on the sufficiency of, of the Lord or the provision that Jesus Christ can give. But, but Andrew is a little more oriented, and he, he said, tells the Lord, he says, well, there's one young boy here who has five loads of bread and two fish, but even that's not enough. So he's, he knows or has some idea that Jesus can do something, but he's not sure what. And so then Jesus gave instruction, had everybody sit down, and then had the disciples begin to pass out the uh, loaves and the fish. And there were about 5,000 men there. Now, when you add in women and children, we're talking of a group of somewhere between twelve and 20,000 people. This is a huge number of people that are spread out all over the uh, low hills there along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when they passed out all of the loaves and the fish, when they gathered up the leftovers, uh, they had, according to verse 13, 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves left over from those who had eaten. So again, just as with the episode with Elisha, the, the bread is multiplied to supply for everyone, and there's Food left over. There is more than enough food for us from the Lord. We're never going to exhaust his ability to provide for us. Now, as the chapter goes on, we see a couple of other lessons that take place. And 
There's one with Jesus walking on the water where he is going to teach them about faith. But then as they go to the next day in verse 22, the people have discovered where he is and they've come uh, come over to his location and there he is going to give them uh, another lesson. And here he points out the fact that the only reason they're there is because of the miracles and because he's going to feed them. Somebody pointed out last week after we had our family night, had such a large crowd here for the family night, one of the deacons uh, somewhat facetiously said, well, Robbie, we know the key. We'll just hang a ham bone around your neck on Sunday morning and the crowds will come out. If you feed them and satisfy their emotional desires, then the big crowds come. And so Jesus then says in verse 27, and this is the sort of the doctrinal heart of the whole episode, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, this is a priority issue. What are you putting your effort into? He says, work, uh, work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. See, we see that word work and we think, ah, work salvation. But that's not, that's not part of this conversation. Uh, he's talking about uh, where are you putting your emphasis? Work for the food which endures to eternal life. It's a gift. The Son of Man gives it to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And so then this is developed in question-answer format. In verse 28, the crowd says, Well, uh, what, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Notice how the word work keeps showing up. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in him. Believing isn't a work in the sense that Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we're not saved by works, that is by trying to impress God with our goodness or good deeds. Work here is used in a more generic sense of just something that one does, whether it's meritorious or non-meritorious, and believing is non-meritorious. And that is, there's no merit in us because we believe the merit is all in Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as the conversation develops, uh, in verse 30, they said, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Notice the ongoing mention of work. In John 6:31, they said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there's the connection to back to Moses. So now Jesus is going to show what that really indicated. In verse 32, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, uh, Moses did not uh, give you the bread from heaven. That wasn't really it. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So bread equals life. But the real spiritual bread, Jesus says, is himself. They want the bread. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So coming to Jesus and believing in him are parallel concepts here. As Jesus expresses it, coming to him is the same as believing in him. And then in verse 36, he said, But I say to you 
that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. See, the issue in all of this is believe. The gospel is believe, 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 believe. I can say that 20 times and then ask people, what do you have to do to be saved? Well, you have to invite Jesus into your life or you have to commit your life to Jesus or some other terminology. I don't know why it's so hard for people just to just stick with what the Bible says, which is believe. And that's all you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the Father, verse 37 and 38. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now, that's really a chiasm in the uh, in the original. Uh, the first term is all that the Father gives me. The second term is will come to me. The parallel second term in the second half is the one who comes to me. And then the last part, I will by no means cast out. So the focus is on the middle two terms there, coming to him, which is an expression of our volition. Now, I'm, I'm pointing this out for one Reason, we'll get to it in just a minute. Jesus then says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of whom, him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. The focus is on those who believe in Jesus are the ones who have eternal life. The focus here is not on God pre-selecting who he's going to call, which is the Calvinist doctrine of efficacious grace. That comes into play here in this particular, uh, this particular section because Jesus is going to say in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And most people stop reading the verse there. And they think what this means is no one can believe unless first the Father draws them in some sort of mystical, internal calling of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have that, then you can't really come to Jesus. So it's not an issue of your volition, it's an issue of God's selection. However, that ignores the next verse, which is a quote from Isaiah 45, 13. Uh, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. The emphasis in his, on Isaiah 45 is God's message to the people is rejected. How does God draw people? We saw it in John 5 a minute ago, his word, his word. It is the proclamation of his word. It is the teaching through the teaching of God's word that people are called and that people are people hear the gospel and that they are uh, drawn to Jesus. It's not some invisible spiritual hook that God reaches down inside of people and says, you know, I'm drawing this person and I'm not drawing that person. The drawing comes through the proclamation of the gospel so that all who will may come and they will respond to the gospel. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. Not just those who might believe in him but are called, but everyone who believes will have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you get down to verse 47 and 48, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Jesus is making the point that he is the spiritual nourishment for us. And it's not done through some sort of mystical way, some sort of encounter with Jesus. It's not done through some sort of mystical ongoing feeding on Christ through the Lord's table. It is done through the study of his word. You feed on the thinking of Christ in his word, and that is used by God to nourish us and to produce spiritual growth. As Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so this is the theme that Jesus states again and again through John chapter 6 and the upper room discourse in order to emphasize the fact that he is the only one who provides life and he is the only one who provides the nourishment for spiritual life. That's the same thing that Elisha is trying to show to the apostate generation of his day. Jesus is addressing the apostate generation of the first century, A.D., and Elisha is addressing the apostate generation of his day in the ninth century B.C. But it's the same issue. What are you going to choose to believe in? It's the same thing Moses said in Deuteronomy 30. Choose you this day the path of life and good or the path of sin and evil. Which is it? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we can gather together today to study these things, to be challenged by your word, to recognize that the only source of life is the Lord Jesus Christ, that you and you alone as the creator of all things can give life, and that that life is given through Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. The choice is ours, whether we are going to choose life or we're going to choose death, whether we're going to choose good or whether we're going to choose evil. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsaved, that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross, They've been canceled. That's not the issue anymore. The issue now is, are you going to accept the free gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ? He paid the penalty for your sins, and when we believe that he died for our sins, then he will give us eternal life. Father, we pray for each believer here that they would recognize the challenge that we cannot be complacent about our spiritual life, that we have to feed on the word on a daily basis that we study, that we apply, and that we grow, and that this is energized by God the Holy Spirit who is working in us in order to uh, produce a character that reflects that of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be a faithful witness both in time and in eternity, both to man and to the angels. Now, Father, we pray that as we reflect upon what we've learned today, that God the Holy Spirit would use that to really uh, challenge us and to change us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.